just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Mobster, Mafia, Cartel, Yakutsa, Cosa Nostra. Many of these names will be familiar to you as the nomenclature for organized crime. These are not just gangs of thugs. These are structured groups of bad guys. They operate on a large scale. They have longevity, decades, generations, centuries. Welcome to Bloody Violent History with me, Tom Ashton, and him, James Jackson. If you have comments or questions on this episode or the series, please email me, talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. And please pass on this show. Click on the share button. We are, of course, steeped in Hollywood's version of The Mobster. Scarface, Bugsy, The Sting, Miller's Crossing, Casino, The Untouchables, and of course, the supreme mafia tale the Godfather. From poverty and suppression, a group, often an immigrant group, will band together and follow a boss man rather than rely on the authorities for protection. These boss men become rich and powerful. They are prepared to use violence, extreme violence, to protect their own. This is true in Sicily, New York, Chicago, Tokyo, St. Petersburg, Moscow and half a hundred other cities around the world. Movie glamour of spats and violin cases is quickly belayed by the dirty reality of dark deeds, vicious acts and extreme sadism. You may consider it a moment of comedy pathos when Sorrentino's Tito di Girolama is lowered into a tank of liquid concrete for disobeying his mafia boss. But who doubts that there are concrete foundations and motorway bridges encasing the bodies of those who disappointed the Godfather. Organised crime has huge resources, wealth, high political connections. They own and operate billion-dollar corporations. We're going to take a look at the festering visage of the mobster. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Jamie, before we disappear into the detail, give me some idea of the scale and reach of these modern-day crime syndicates. Well, you mentioned in the introduction that the difference between street gangs and mobsters, street gangs and organised crime, and it boils down to organisation and wealth and reach and influence. And that reach is not just to the political influences and political organisations of countries. It also is reach that is international, that, that reaches across continents. And that grows out of the wealth. That grows from the cash flow that these crime organisations make, largely from drugs or from gambling and human trafficking and other areas as well. But, but, but drugs are key to the explosion in wealth of so many of these groups. The difference with street gangs is that street gangs, as the name suggests, tend to be localised. Uh, extreme violence covers all these areas. But if you want street gangs, for example, you can take the 38th street gang in 
Los Angeles and there is a Hispanic gang. It's been there for a long time, since the 1920s, but it has been absorbed by the Mexican mafia and is used as their point men, as their hitmen. Like the postcode gangs in London, I suppose. I, I, exactly. Oh. They, 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 are, they are useful idiots in a way. And you have a constant sort of flow of, of soldiers, of, of, of hitmen coming through, people who can be your eyes and ears on the street. And that's always useful for the bigger crime organisation. If you take a group, you mentioned tribalism. And so if you take a group like the Crips, for example, that grew out of Compton in South LA in the late 1960s, or the Blood Gang or the Bloods that, that really grew out of Inglewood, again in, in South LA, the level of violence that came along with it. You know, they, they might claim that they're part of the sort of black activist, uh, black identity movement. You know, it's said that Raymond Washington, one of the two founders of the Crips, was a great admirer of Malcolm X. But, but these people, you know, joined street gangs and basically started killing and selling drugs. So this, is, this is how they grew. And... You can tell they're, they're still steeped in sort of street gang culture, given that some of the subsidiary groups of the Bloods, for example, are called the Sex Money Murder Gang, and that's over on the East Coast, that's over in New York. So you know, they're very much steeped in that sort of tradition. You can see the sort of nature of those street gangs from what happened to their founders. Someone like Stanley Williams, one of the co-founders of the Crips, he ended up being captured in 1979, charged with the murder of four people during two, two robberies, and was given a lethal injection in 2005. Someone like Raymond Washington, the other founder, he was gunned down in a drive-by shooting in 1979. So they, they begin with violence and they generally end with violence as well. Excellent. So the gangs, the street gangs are a sort of micro and can possibly morph into an organised crime setup. But... The scale of some of these mobster outfits is truly enormous. It, it, absolutely vast. And, and, and they're always evolving. They're always looking for new entrees into the business world. The, the, the other difference, really, between street gangs and organised crime is organised crime is always looking to set up legitimate fronts. And maybe they have a political dimension as well. You look at... The, the drug captagon, which is known as poor man's cocaine and amphetamine. Syria uh, dominates that market, produces 80% of the captagon market, and it produces, generates billions of dollars for President Assad of Syria and Hezbollah uh, because they sell it into the Gulf, into Saudi Arabia. It's crippling Saudi Arabia with the, the, the drug problems that it's creating there. So it's twofold. I mean, it, they it's, get it's, money it, and they destroy their enemy. Exactly. It's a sort of asymmetric weapon of warfare, if you like. It's very different to the, 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 the street dimension that you get, for example, on, on, on the streets of L.A., 
I remember going around L.A. in the early 1990s and I was researching a book uh, called The Race and it was about these street gangs and I was sliding lower and lower in my seat because I didn't want to be shot through the head and I sure as hell wasn't wearing blue, the colour of the Crips, or red, the colour of the Bloods. Well, the uh, the outing of your red polar neck had to be delayed. <laughs> it had, it had it? to be delayed, yeah. And and uh, it, it, I got to the end of that trip and thought, what the hell was I doing in the name of research? And but 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 it was quite sobering. And you realise that these the street gangs not only grow out of this tribal dimension, but they live in this kind of post-apocalyptic landscape and they, they feed on the poverty and they create the poverty because no one is going to invest in these areas because you, you take areas like Watts or Inglewood or Compton and the crime rate is, is sort of 50% above the, the national average in, in other places in the United States. So, so no one really wants to go there. Um, and I'm sure, not sure I want to get back there either. But, but it was fascinating. But this is the difference. It's really localism versus internationalism. And we'll, we'll go on to the scale now of what the, that, that sort of money, what the generation of funds creates. So one of the most famous mobsters in South America was Pablo Escobar, the great cocaine baron. Yes, when well, he set up the Medellin drug cartel, it was estimated that at its height it was worth about $100 billion. Phenomenal amount of money. And so once you make that sort of money, once you're making sort of five million bucks a day, you can buy anyone. And the other extraordinary thing and, and, and another insight into organised crime is, is that political dimension because Escobar became a liberal politician in Colombia. He killed the first leader of that Liberal Party. He then tried to kill the second leader of that party, blew up a plane, killed 107 people on that plane. So, And that was, that was actually because they killed a couple of Americans, didn't he? And that's when the Americans started to pile in and take an int- a major interest in getting pre- rid of him. Pre- precisely, because people suddenly woke up to, to, to the, not only the level of violence, but the level of influence these drug gangs had. And, again, you go to somewhere like Italy today, to Calabria, everyone's heard of Cosa Nostra or the Camorra, but but fewer people seem to have heard of the Indrangheta gang. And that organisation dominates Calabria, the, the toe of Italy, and estimates claim that it's worth 60 billion euros a year in turnover. And... No wonder it can buy politicians, it can buy influence. It it constitutes 3% of Italy's GDP, that one crime organisation. So you can see that level of influence, that level of reach. And Drangheta, I think the success of their uh, obscurity and being well hidden away from the public eye is their unpronounceable name, because whenever you ask somebody in the street... Uh, give me a name of a mafia gang, they'll say Cosa Nostra or something like that, but none of them would come up with this one, and it seems to be the biggest one of all. And, and they grow and they adapt. If you, if you look at the Colombian drug trade or the Mexican drug trade, it's the Mexican mafia. These are the cartels. The, these are the cartels. Mm. These are the, the real organised crime, international organisations. And you can see their influence by the fact that that Mexico really took over from Colombia once uh, 
people like Escobar were dealt with. And so Mexico took over. A lot of the drugs, cocaine, is, is funneled through Brazil, and it's estimated that a third to two-thirds of that trade is then transited through uh, West Africa, which is why countries like Guinea-Bissau, Ghana, Nigeria uh, have a sort of narco-state element to it. I mean, they, they, they have their villas on the west coast of Africa, all these, all these uh, narco-bosses, and it's it's a vast trade. I mean, each shipment can be 100 to 200 tonnes of cocaine, all heading for the European market. And this is why Frederick Forsyth wrote his thriller, The Cobra. It was on that subject, looking at how do you disrupt, how do you counter that trade. And so much of the success of these organisations is based on this underlying foundation of brutality. Oh, yes, the, the violence is key to it, or the threat of violence is key. Uh, how do you stand up to it? Uh, I once dealt with a powerboat company that uh, uh, sold uh, one of its monohull boats that could go at 100 knots. I think they sold it to the Drug Enforcement Agency, and their representative was found dead in a ditch because the one thing the cartels didn't want was to have vessels could overhaul their drug shipments. So you've got this constant battle going on. And there's no holds barred, is there? I mean, the death of Giuseppe Di Matteo was appalling. The killing of that 12-year-old boy, uh, Giuseppe Di Matteo, was notorious and, and still is notorious. And the, the person who's sort of seen as key to that was the mafia boss known as uh, Diabolic, Messina Denaro, who was only arrested after 30 years on the run in 2023, January 2023, uh, when he was receiving cancer treatment. So you can see there's so many people covering the traces of that. But, but that poor kid was held for two years, tortured, strangled, and was dissolved in a vat of acid. So if they're doing that to, to children, you can see that the level of violence they perpetrate uh, around the world is, it just has no equal. There's nothing they're not prepared to do. There, there's nothing, and we'll get on to some of the, these, these violent attacks later, but you go from that to 1979, the, 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 the almost archetype mafia murder of a boss of bosses, the acting boss of the Bonanno crime syndicate, uh, Carmine Galante, in Joe and Mary's American-Italian restaurant where he was gunned down on the terrace there while having lunch in, in July 1979. And the photographs show him with a bullet in his eye and he's still got a cigar clamped in his mouth. He was nicknamed the cigar. He was five foot two. And just a little crime boss, very aggressive, wanted to take over uh, all the drug dealing in, in New York. And the other uh, crime bosses decided we've had enough, including the former head of the Bonanno uh, crime family. So uh, he was he was off. But, but that's as close as you'll get to the sort of godfather type murders. Well, yes, the godfather, Don Corleone's um, hitman, the feared Luca Brasi eventually meets his Waterloo when they uh, assassinate him by grotting him in a bar, having stabbed him in the, in the hand so he can't move. He's got his hand pinned to the bar. 
and nobody knows what's happened to him. And eventually a suitcase is delivered to the Corleone family. Um, and inside it is Luca Brass's bulletproof vest uh, with a fish inside it, which is the old Sicilian uh, way of indicating that he now sleeps with the fishies. Well, there you go. And there was another one strangled in his car because I remember the foot coming through the windscreen. <laughs> So it's pr pretty grim. And, of course, Goodfellas. Do you remember the stabbing in the boot of that car there? I mean, it's just, just horrendous. But, but this is the sort of violence. But the, but the thing is that those films, it is, it is horrendous, but the reality is actually worse. It, it is. You know, the, it is. What really happened is, I mean, you know, to hold a child of 12 for two years, you couldn't put that in a film. No, 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 you couldn't. But but it, it's it's but you take away the, the the sort of magic of Hollywood, and it is just grim. It's grim, and it's business. That's really what it is. It's it's business with violence. Yeah. And, and, and later on, we'll talk about Putin's Russia, and 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 it is that combination. If you get a kleptocratic state, whether it's in Africa or in Russia, then you are going to get. The, the, the use of the mob, the use of organised crime in order to enforce discipline, to cow the population, to get their paws on the assets of that state, to be involved in every criminal racket and, and, and put down in conjunction with the KGB, in conjunction with the secret police, putting down opposition. It so, really is that idea of, of boss of bosses, isn't it? You know, like the families in New York, there was a sort of, there was a head boss of all the different mafia families who was the boss of bosses, and Putin's really that. Yes, it? and, and it, it's, you know, there was a saying by Pablo Escobar, of silver or lead, you you either took the bribe or you were killed, and that that is is the rule across every part of the organised crime world. That's that's what happens. Did I ever tell you my electric eel story? Yes, you did, Jamie. Let's move on. No, I want to tell you my. <laughs> <laughs> you no, told I'll... it to me five minutes ago. Yeah, I'm going to tell you on record now. Oh, for God. the record, yeah. it's a great story. It is a good story. Marlon Brando. Uh, was quite into electric eels. He had bought this uh, atoll off Tahiti uh, back in the 60s and he decided he wanted to have it powered by electric eels. This was his doing his bit for the environment. And so he started collecting electric eels and whenever their tank was cleaned out, the, the eels would be put in the swimming pool and his son turned up with his girlfriend and she dived into the pool and ended up back on the side of the pool, having been shocked out of the pool <laughs> by electric eels, who, who of course can produce up to 800 volts per, per beast. So that was that, the electric eel story. has and nothing to do with the mob. but iPhone I've... charger. <laughs> electric eel. It's just quite a great story, really. Excellent. I, I've always, you know, all this business about what, where are we going to get all the electricity from? Is it wind farms or, or nuclear power? I think it's spaniels, actually, you know, the way that spaniels run around. They should just breed lots of spaniels and they could be running on treadmills and yes. then power the entire country. Unfortunately, they zigzag, so yeah, yeah, <laughs> controlling so them might be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> He's off the treadmill again. You mentioned a minute ago uh, that it's all about business. What about show business? Well, it's fairly obvious, Tom, that where you get casinos, you get the mob, because not only have you got great cash flow, a bit like the narcotics business, but you have a great money laundering operation. So this is a perfect place, you know, where the laws are lax, where real estate can be acquired, where hotels can be put up. So in 
and also the, the making it legitimate in a way, making money, business le- sort of legitimate. Yes, it's another front company, if you like, for the mob. So uh, today you get the the Mexican mafia in L.A. running casinos. But back then, you know, just after the Second World War, you get someone like uh, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel, a Jewish mafiosi, coming over really to, to sort of push that whole agenda and doing extremely well and getting involved with the Flamingo, getting involved with the Thunderbird and the Desert Inn. You know, these sort of casino hotels started sort of sprouting and the strip developing and, and, and so it began. So this, this, this mob investment uh, really started gathering pace. But quite quickly... Um, there was a falling out. They, the the mob in Chicago thought that uh, Siegel's girlfriend Virginia Hill was uh, skimming them of their off the top of this construction budget, um, and he was assassinated in '47 with uh, a, by a sniper through the window of his girlfriend's apartment. Yeah, and that was in Beverly Hills. I mean, Siegel had sort of made so much money in Las Vegas, he sort of moved back to Beverly Hills. And then, I think well, Las Vegas was a pretty grim place then. I mean, it was just desert and a couple of hotels poking well, it was up. Pretty, pretty grim when I was there first in in the early nineteen eighties. So that that was the sort of when the, the the influence of the mob was beginning to wane. It, it had started to wane really, and then in the sort of latter part of the nineteen sixties, because who should turn up but Howard Hughes, and he started acquiring hotels like the Flamingo and others, and and developing them and, and moving in, and I think he moved into the Desert Inn, wasn't it? And just didn't didn't leave for about four years. Stayed in a dark room, being looked after by his Mormon assistants. There you go, and 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 so that began to legitimise. The, the, the sort of business aspect of, of Vegas. And you started getting tougher laws coming in. So the mob found it harder. It wasn't quite the sort of uh, free-form improvisation it had been in the 1940s and 50s. And, and despite his father, um, Robert Kennedy, um, John Kennedy's brother, who was the Attorney General in the early 60s, had an absolute bee in his bonnet about the mob and was determined to... Uh, crack down on them. Yeah, but it wasn't a very successful campaign. The the other thing I about, think Hoover was was probably pushing against it, wasn't it? He wasn't really taking it as seriously. He was just obsessed by communists. Well, yeah, everyone has their sort of shtick. That was that was Hoover's. But the but the the other thing that that one has to sort of take into account was after the Second World War, you a, a bit like. The, the, the sort of street gangs recruiting in jail. Uh, you know, we mentioned the Crips and the Bloods in LA and the fact that they have, have sort of tried to ally themselves with, with identity politics and, and all of that. Uh, you know, and they recruit people from prison. You know, they're foot soldiers from prison. It's a protection racket. So you get after the Second World War, you get a lot of people trained in violence, a lot of people trained in killing. And so people were coming back and, and, and those of Italian heritage who were linked to, to criminal organisations, you, you, you get these criminal organisations having a huge reservoir of violent people, of people who, who, who think nothing of, of using small arms, grenades or rocket launchers. 
And and of course, in the in the Godfather movies, it's Michael Corleone who who has been a soldier in the Second World, who comes back and is a man of sort of honour at that point because he served his country and he doesn't want to go into the family business, which is a romanticised version entirely of what the reality is. You're suggesting, uh, and the reality of the Second World War was was grim economic uh, times. And, and so organised crime offered employment in the same way that street gangs offered employment. So, so you get these, these, this trained cadre of people who can actually do the bidding. And to stay with the theme of the Godfather, there is another um, example of, of when um, an early Don Vito uh, move with Luca Brasi was when they persuade um, their, his godson, uh, agent to give up his contract by holding a gun to his head almost exactly the same as in the case of old blue eyes frank sinatra yeah i mean the 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 links between uh, frank sinatra and the mafia really can't be uh, argued against i mean the 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 fbi followed him for 40 years they had a 2403 page file that they drew up and there's no doubt that he socialised quite openly with mafia bosses in Chicago, Detroit. Uh, they came to see his shows. Uh, they probably funded his shows. Uh, Willie Moretti uh, pushed a, a gun down the throat of uh, Tommy Dorsey, uh, Frank Sinatra's agent, and managed to, quote-unquote, uh, renegotiate the contract. Uh, I think for for about a dollar, wasn't it, or something? Well, yeah, and he had a terror. Sinatra had a dreadful contract with Tommy Dorsey, whereby he had to hand over forty three percent of his uh, earnings over his whole life lifetime. That, that, that's right. Moretti sorted that out. Moretti was actually his godfather. So <laughs> Moretti was actually the the underboss for the Genovese crime syndicate. So one of the great mafia families, one of the five families. Uh, mob families in the United States. So, so yes, there, there's always been that link, not just between gambling and the mob, but also show business and the mob. And so if you get the mob uh, funding casinos, they're also going to be funding the, the, the sort of rise of, of various stars, of, of various showbiz personalities. And also these uh, gangsters and so on, uh, you know, they'd love to be seen in the company of famous superstars and, and vice versa you you come over to london back in the 60s and and the the number of people who were hanging out with the cray twins i mean that that was a big thing as well i mean it, it was just seen as part of the the swinging 60s but but it tends to go wrong and and you go back to frank sinatra and in 1963 frank sinatra junior was kidnapped by members of the mob and and in the end uh, Sinatra had to pay a ransom to get him back. So if you, if you sup with the devil, it kind of catches up with you. I thought you were meant to sup with a long spoon. Well, that's right, and Sinatra... This is not plain, long enough. <laughs> plainly not. My, my, my link to Vegas was just in passing when I arrived there aged 18, moved into a really ghastly motel, and I had a bed that had a thing called magic fingers that vibrated. <laughs> and I put a coin in just to see what happened. And it started vibrating, it wouldn't stop. So I spent the whole night sleeping on the floor next to this rocking bed. That's so I don't know what the people in the next door room might have thought. <laughs> that's, 
That's such a classic. And it ha it, exactly the same happened to my parents in Germany, where they uh, put a coin in the slot for the vibrating bed and spent the night on the floor and as did well. Did they do it as well? Yeah. yeah. Asked, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's obviously a thing when the Anglo-Saxons go abroad. Don't <laughs> don't put the dime in the slot in the bedpost. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't use any contraption or devices that you come across. Certainly not. Oh, dear. There was a time uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union when those uh, spy movies and novels often had the Russian mafia on the side of the goodies because they were the ones who would be able to smuggle your spy back to the West and things like that. But the Bratva, the Russian mafia, are some of the most unpleasant individuals uh, in this particular crime boss mobster world. Indeed, Tom. And if you get someone like Putin... Who, who is really at the confluence of, of both the Russian mafia and of these secret police, the KGB, then you get a real problem because the state is suffused not only by the, the, the terror, the control of the KGB, but also the terror and the influence and the wealth-making of the, the, the mafia, of, of, of crime bosses. And, of course... When Putin became deputy mayor of St. Petersburg in 91, he had all those connections. Litvinenko, before he was killed, uh, always claimed that the crime boss, one of the ten most wanted people in the world, Simeon Mogilevich, was a, a great friend of Putin, and certainly Putin cultivated those uh, sort of mafia connections. And, and that's really what gave him his funding. And when you see what happened to the gambling industry in St. Petersburg, again, you know, not just Putin's sort of connections to that, but the mafia who controlled it. And what Putin did, there were laws came in saying yeah. that... Licenses. Licenses yeah. and, and having to pay rent. And, and so Putin allowed those casinos, those mafia organisations, simply to, to report losses. And that wouldn't have happened had Putin not been in charge, had Putin not started to get backhanders from those organisations. So there was that connection. There was the beginning of the, of the money-making process, his links to crime. And it's been said by many international uh, police organisations and, and intelligence organisations that Putin is directly linked to the international drugs trade. Yes, Yes, Monaco's security service says he is the kingpin in Europe's narcotics trade. Yes, and they're just one of the organisations who have said this. I mean, there's no doubt that that if you look at the the criminal links, and of course then Putin's links to the Wagner Group, he's not only got money-making ventures going on, he's also got the enforcers. And that spreads internationally as well. And, and, and he's got this, um, got this ability to enjoy the money w without saying he's got it. Well, it. well, yes. I mean, if you look at things like the Dacia cooperative venture that he set up. zero, yes. Yeah, on the border of Finland, close to the border of Finland. You, you look at the, the, the high net worth individuals that are included in that grouping. The, the, the bank account is with the uh, St. Petersburg Oblast Bank or the Leningrad Oblast Bank, as it was once called. And 
no one has the details of it, and, and Putin's name never appears, but he's certainly a shareholder in that. So that, again, is a money-making venture, and the people who bought the plots of land there were all either mafia or KGB-linked. And, and billionaires. Uh, and billionaires. Yeah. So there's this extraordinary sort of coming together, and that's why they call it a kleptocracy. It is a wholesale theft of the assets of a nation. Oh, yeah. And and Putin is at the head of that. The capo di capi. He, he is completely the capo di capi. I mean, that that is that is his position. And if you, uh, if Mr. Putin wants to make a withdrawal and one of these oligarchs decides that he's not going to give him his money, what happens? They, 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 they suddenly fall out. <laughs> they fall out of windows. Yeah. And, and, and this is why it's, it's really the godfather writ large, because not only are you having sort of executions of people all the time, you're, you're having people who complain. I mean, you, you, you get anti-corruption um, officials, and they are simply trumped up on a charge. There was one official in St. Petersburg who, who complained about uh, Putin's methods and the, and the corruption going on, and he was put in prison for life and died in prison. So you either fall out of a window or you're simply sent away and never seen, never heard of again. It's, it's a very simple business. And if you're that powerful, and, and this is in a way why no one can be surprised at the level of violence against civilians in Ukraine, because to someone like Putin, if you're brutalizing your own people, if killing is one of the ways of, of, of getting what you want, then you're not going to worry about sending cruise missiles against a palm block. Or no, it doesn't register on the... There's no, no empathy meter, is no, there? No, you're not going to worry about people being hit, hit with sledgehammers or torture chambers being discovered or uh, children being deported and kidnapped. I mean, this is just normal for, for, for people in that position. And it is this coming together of really the secret state, the secret police and the mafia. That's really what you get. That's the end result. And, um, you know, there was some hope for Putin in the early years. But in fact, if you look at his, if his career in St. Petersburg before he became uh, president had been closely examined, you, you mentioned the Dachas and also he, he basically flogged off the Baltic Sea Fleet. Um, and, and the oil terminals. I mean, you know, he was into everything, the casinos. It, 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 it was a brilliant ruse. And if you look at what he did to the Baltic commercial fleet, he simply seized it and then asset stripped it and sold the vessels on uh, at huge prices. It, 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 it was a brilliant venture, if you look at it from that point of view. He couldn't lose money. So he made that. He then gave the oil terminal to the mafia, to the local mafia. It was a sort of thank you. And, of course, he'll be getting a cut from that as well. So as oil prices have gone up, so the, the Putin's bank account has gone up as well. I and mean, the value of his holdings have increased. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Well, we've mentioned Robert Kennedy, and his father was Senator Joseph Kennedy Sr. Um, before the Second World War. Was he linked to organised crime? 
No one really knows, Tom. We've talked about organised crime having a sort of tribal element, and there's no doubt that he was a big representative for the Irish community. He was profoundly anti-British, I might add, and uh, I think uh, everyone sighed a bit of relief when he left Britain as as ambassador to London. And yes, he'd been he'd been Roosevelt's ambassador, hadn't he? That, that's yeah. right. But he he a bit like General MacArthur. They 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 just didn't like Britain, and they, and they had this sort of hang up about Britain's imperial past and all of that. And of course, there was that Irish dimension as well for for Kennedy. But this idea of him being linked to the mob during Prohibition. It's interesting that when Prohibition was coming to an end, he was in pole position to act as an agent for the import of alcohol. So you get the uh, Somerset importers, you get the company that Churchill invested in. The National Distillers Products Corporation which was hugely successful, as was Somerset Importers. Uh, Somerset Importers was the agent, the exclusive agent for, for bringing in Hague and Hague whiskey, Dewar, Gordon's Gin. It, it did incredibly well. And 10 years later, uh, the, this was sort of set up in uh, 1933, just as Prohibition was coming in. And a decade later, Joe Kennedy sold it for 85 uh, million dollars, his stake. So he he wasn't averse to making a lot of money, but it's very difficult to to pin the mob on on Joseph Kennedy or or, or the Irish organised crime syndicates to to Joseph Kennedy. Well, let's get back to the real thing then. The drug cartels of South America. This is Colombia and the cartels. Before we get into Escobar might just mention the way they were structured because we talked about it at the beginning the difference between gangs and organized crime is that they have a uh, organized crime have a whole structure and in the cartels the lowest ranking members are called the falcons and they're basically people who are being tested and they do reconnaissance report on activities of the opponents and so on then the next men are the, the hitmen, the Sicaros, who are responsible for carrying out assassinations, kidnappings, theft, extortion, and so on. They would be the made men in mafia parlance. Then you've got the lieutenants, the lieutenants. Each le- lieutenant operates his own territory and are allowed to a fairly wide degree of autonomy, organising assassinations so on without permission from the boss. And then on top you've got the drug lord, you've got Escobar, the highest position. And he does. Well, he oversees everything. Yeah, and, and, and so you can see, we, we mentioned organisation right at the start. It is this hierarchy that is so important and, and, and keeps the discipline, keeps the, the thing rolling along. Those Sicaris, those hitmen, some of them were as young as 14. They just recruited off the street and they were offered 3,000 bucks to go and kill a policeman, for example. So, in an environment, I mean, you know, there there was a price of a hundred dollars. Yeah, that was that was just for killing a rival somewhere on a street. Uh, I think lawmakers carried more risk, so therefore, um, you know, law enforcement officers they had a higher higher price on their heads. So, but but it just shows in this environment of violence that there were always people willing to come forward. And then you have those coming out of prison, as we mentioned before, who also add to that 
to that sort of system. There are thousands of these at street level. You know, we mentioned gangs you know, back in LA. The, the Crips, for example, are known to have up to 15,000 gang members just in LA alone. So, so the, the, at, the, at the lowest level, the bigger crime organisations end up with a very huge reach. And yet they never made it. They never uh, transferred themselves into a proper organisation, they still really just remained a gang. Well, well, they stay at the street, street yes. level. But, but he, I mean, Escobar, I mean, he was, he was using mercenaries, Israeli and British mercenaries, to train his men and, in fact, was nearly taken out by um, a mercenary group, including an ex-SAS soldier, Peter Macalese. Yeah, the um, Carly Syndicate sent him into the jungle. They even gave him a helicopter. And a million-pound bonus if he was killed, but Escobar survived, um, as, as did the mercenary group, but the operation was unsuccessful. And the helicopter crashed. Uh, things can go wrong in any situation. But this is the reach. This is the organisation. This is the wealth of, of, of these drug gangs. But come the death of Escobar in a shootout in 1993, it, all those Colombian cartels, they, they, their, their influence waned, and it was the Mexicans who moved in. So it, it's so often the kingpin who is his key to the, the survival and activities of those organisations. And sometimes, if, if they get taken out, then their personality, their influence has gone, and the organisation begins to... Uh, fall to pieces around them. Uh, unlike the Italian mob, for example, that's managed to survive uh, a very long time indeed. Before we move on to the next section, um, let's have a word about President Berlusconi and the Italian mafia. There was a recorded uh, wiretap conversation by the Italian mafia boss from Palermo, Giuseppe Guttadoro, who said, Berlusconi in order to solve his problems, has to solve ours. I don't know why anyone's surprised about these sort of links. I mean, after all, if you take a Prime Minister like Andriotti, there's no doubt he was steeped in, in links to the Mafia, steeped in their culture, and benefited from those links. And it's known that Berlusconi did bribe uh, local organisations, local local mafia organisations uh, for influence and for votes. And if you have a situation, certainly in the southern parts of Italy, that are poor, where organised crime uh, does things for the local population, just as Escobar did in Colombia, building apartment blocks and things like that, then it's just natural, it's, it's unsurprising that politicians who want influence and votes go to those organised crime families and organisations like Cosa Nostra saying, uh, we need those votes, will, will you help me? And so those links have grow. And when you get someone like Berlusconi, who is plainly, utterly unprincipled, I mean, this is a man, uh, as we've spoken about before, who was holidaying with Putin, <laughs> just a year after Putin invaded Crimea in 2014. Here's a man who's not going to be concerned about having mafia links. He even employed Vittorio Mangano, a mafia hitman and enforcer, to act 
ostensibly as his gardener and DIY man, but actually to, to work as a bodyguard and take his children to school to ensure that his, his children weren't kidnapped. And Vittorio Mangano was eventually uh, sentenced uh, to, I think, life imprisonment for the murder of two men back in 1995. So he was a pretty unpleasant piece of work. And, uh, and the kidnapping of someone from a dinner party, which seems to be a very, very that's very rough... That's very Italian, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's Come like, to dinner. Well, yes, it, it, it's uh, like the murder of Galante in, in Brooklyn in 1979. That, that restaurant, by the way, was called Joe and Mary's, American-Italian restaurant. Fantastic. In Again, another scene from The Godfather, in, slightly in reverse, isn't it, when, when they shoot the police? Yeah, yeah. By the way, that, that restaurant was in the whims, whimsically named uh, Knickerbocker Avenue. <laughs> but Berlusconi was part of the, the... There's this element of the absurd going on. I, I know someone who was actually taken by Berlusconi round uh, his house, and, and Berlusconi quite openly said, "That's where they do drugs. That's where they do the bunga bunga. That's where they do <laughs> absolutely no shame, no shame at all, no shame at all." An odd thing, you get sent for, you go in alive, you come out dead, and it's your best friend that does it. Okay, Jamie, our next section, part three, the hit. We're calling it the hit because it's really to give an indication of the scale of violence involved in organised crime, that, that it is endemic and an epidemic, really. And if you look at the Mexican uh, mafia, the Mexican drug cartels, for example, in, in Mexico, 60,000 people were killed since 2006 in these drug wars. A huge amount. No one even bats an eyelid at the fact that, for example, 43 students are murdered and never seen again. I mean, th this is, this is yeah. just... Race to the bottom. It, it is a race to the bottom. And this particular battle is quite an, ex an astonishing example of the power, really, of these South American mobsters. This was the son of El Chapo at the Battle of Culican in 2019... Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the National Guard turned up to arrest him and they came in armoured cars, they came heavily armed and they ended up... This being, was to bring him back to the States, wasn't it? You know, yeah, that, that was sort of getting involved in extradition. And, and, of course, extradition itself gets influenced by the power of, of organised crime. I mean, you look at uh, Escobar in Colombia, and, and he was very much behind the law of uh, stopping extradition to the United States. He didn't surrender until the law had changed, so he could then be held in a prison, la cathedral, of, of his own design, uh, from which he then escaped. So, so you know, the, the influence runs very deep and very wide. And so when you get this sort of attempt to arrest uh, this son of this this Mexican crime lord. Ovidio Guzman. Uh, yeah, of, of Guzman. When you get this arrest of El Chapo's son, Guzman's son, suddenly 700 uh, foot soldiers of organised crime of, of El Chapo turn up, surround the soldiers and take them prisoner, essentially. 
and, and take over the city, pretty they, much, they, don't they? They, they do, they do. And, and these men are armed not only with uh, assault rifles, they're armed with rocket launchers as well. <laughs> they, they've got all the kit. Uh, and this is why they can go to war against the authorities. Uh, this is why in Colombia you had them finding helicopters and hiring mercenaries, Israeli and British mercenaries. This, this is the level. You're, you're almost dealing with paramilitary organisations. And on that occasion, a video was released because his hitmen had taken hostage so many, so many civilians. But he was actually recaptured in January 2023. That's right. And El Chapo himself was, was dubbed public enemy number one by the Chicago authorities. He had a huge influence on drug supply to the United States and, and, and you know, a profound impact on the international drugs trade. The last man to receive that title of public enemy number one from Chicago was, any guess, Jamie? I'm guessing. Well, it certainly wasn't Bugsy Malone. I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting uh, Al Capone, of course. He is correct. Give that man a cigar. <laughs> I might get shot in the eye. <laughs> right, let's get back to North America and Chicago, home of the Mafia, or at least one of the homes of the Mafia. In the 20s, which is the time of Prohibition, the assassination of Dean O'Banion. Yes, and this was a long time before the, the famous or infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre of 1929. This was 1924. And so you saw this tension between the rival gangs, the Northside Gang and the Jenner family that was part of the Union Siciliana, the, the, the Sicilian Mafia. And... This rivalry grew through the 20s with the beer wars. You got a lot of mobsters killed. There were constant shootings. The use of Tommy guns became a regular thing, the, 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 a sort of signature tune of, of the Chicago mobsters. And Dino Banyan, who, who, who ran a, his operation out of a flower shop, I mean, this is how sort of prosaic uh, it is. This is how, how normal... The, the sort of front organisations seemed to be. It was just a, a sort of flower shop. And, and Dino Banyan had insulted Angelo Jenner, uh, the head of the, the rival Sicilians. And so Jenner decided to do a hit. And so they went round. The, the, the rest of the mobsters actually weren't in favour of this. But the chief of chiefs had, had, had died from cancer. So Jenner went round with um, his hitmen. O'Banion ended up with two bullets to his chest, two bullets in his throat and one in the back of the head. It, it was one of those sort of archetypal mafia hits. It reminds me of what happened to Anthony Spilotro, who was sent by the Chicago mob to Vegas to take over uh, the mobster operations there. And he, he took over in 1971 and ran that operation out of the gift shop of Circus Circus in Vegas. He eventually disappeared in the 1980s and was murdered in 1986. Um, Buried in a, in a cornfield in Indiana with his brother, rather like that scene, Joe Pesci being buried, clubbed to death and buried in the desert in uh, the movie Casino. That's right. So whether it's Chicago, Vegas, the, these hits were sort of very common. So you go back to, to what was happening in Chicago and you know the, the beer wars that started the rivalry that started 133 hits were ordered 
and mobsters were, were killed through that period, through the 1920s, a height of prohibition. So everyone wanted to, to get in on the act, make their money from prohibited alcohol sales and shabines that were cropping up everywhere. And whenever there's a vacancy, somebody takes over. So Dean O'Banion was murdered, assassinated. And Jaime Weiss, who took over, a Polish-Jewish uh, mobster from the Northside gang. The only man Al Capone feared, apparently. Uh, indeed. And, and, and again, it's that rivalry between those two groups uh, before you get the St. Valentine's Day massacre in 1929. The, the, the murder of Jaime Weiss was in 1926, and he and four others were gunned down on the sidewalk. And, uh, in fact, it was Weiss's bodyguard that delivered the mortal blow by mistake when he was firing back at Blasting the Blasting away with his thirty-eight. Yeah. yeah, Vice was already on the ground, having been wounded. And uh, so it was, it was like the gunfight of the OK Corral. It was, it was so typical of that period. Uh, people were spraying a lot of bullets around. Well, after the Second World War, of course, we had the continuation of the, of the mob and the five families and all of that. And one of the most famous bosses was Sam Giancana, the boss of the Chicago outfit from 1957 to 1966. Um, he was released from prison and fled to Mexico, and then he was deported back to the U.S. and arrived back in Chicago in 1974. Uh, he returned to the U.S. and the police were told to, to guard him in his home. But on the night of the 19th of June in 1975, before he was due to appear before the church committee, who were investigating the Cosa Nostra and the CIA colluding, a gunman entered his home and shot Giancana in the head and neck seven times with a two two caliber pistol. Question again, Jamie, who was the killer? I have a feeling it might have been old Anthony from uh, later killed himself. And buried in Indiana, yeah, Anthony Spilotro. Yeah, Spilotro, yeah. the man who ran, ran his operation in Vegas from the gift shop at Circus Circus. They're all at it and they've got they're, their just desserts. They're all at it and they, they all have a, a, a sort of finite period in which they're in control before rivals come along. And if you're dealing in this sort of level of fear and control, it's so easy to slip. It's so easy to be uh, found wanting or it's so easy for your lieutenants to get jealous or scared and, and want to remove you from your position. Right, back over the pond to Italy and the mafia killings. And, and uh, people may remember, some people may remember that the Italians were trying to clean up Sicily and they appointed the Anti-Mafia Commission with prosecutors such as Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino. However, the head of the Mafia in Sicily, who was known as Salvatore Rina, decided to get rid of these people, and that was one of his most famous assassinations in the early 90s. He advocated killing of women and children and killed members of the public to distract the police, and his hitman, Jamie. Yeah, Giovanni Brusca uh, claimed that 
uh, he had been responsible for 200 deaths or so. I mean, th th this was on a mass scale. He wasn't afraid of bombings, uh, just like Escobar in Colombia, blowing up planes. This was a man who advocated bombing uh, civilian restaurants, nightclubs, you name it, in order to distract or in order to kill uh, rivals or prosecutors. And then eventually there was the uh, Maxi trial of 1986 where many mafia informants were corralled into giving information and that led to the conviction of 338 people sentenced to over 2,500 years of time, including 19 life sentences for the bosses. And Rena was eventually captured in 1993, having been a fugitive for 23 years. Yeah, and he, he died in the 2000s. I mean, he, he had, had escaped justice for so long. And it's hardly surprising that his nickname was La Belva, the Beast. Uh, he was a real hard man, and uh, he was given uh, a very hard regime in prison, uh, one of the most sort of maximum security, hard task prisons you could ever come across in, 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 in European uh, legal frameworks. I mean, he, he, but, but he damn well deserved everything he got. He, he was a deeply unpleasant crime boss. But so many of them end up either being killed or being on the run for 20, 30 years and, and hiding out. And this was really the beginning of the end of the Cosa Nostra in Sicily. This was really the beginning of the end for, for their influence and, and the, sort of, the, the sort of slow strangulation of, of their power and their wealth. Right at the beginning, I mentioned that um, some of these bad men rise to the top because the peasantry are being given a hard time by the authorities or ignored and left to starve. And Salvatore Giuliano is an Italian bandit who very much rose to prominence during the 40s. And he rose to prominence uh, not just because of the authorities giving the peasantry a hard time, and so he became this sort of Robin Hood figure, uh, like Escobar again in, in Colombia. It was that product of war. He started with food smuggling and moved on from that. And uh, once more, he, like other mobsters, like other bandits, he was not afraid of committing terrible acts of violence. He hated the communists and uh, in the May celebrations, May Day celebrations of 1947, he, he ended up getting his men to open fire on 5,000 peasants gathered for those celebrations. 11 were killed, including women and children. So he was as brutal as, as the rest of them, but it just shows the beginnings of that sort of mafia uh, sort of influence in, in Sicily and you know, throughout, the rest, throughout the rest of Italy. You know, th this, this is how it started. And again, so many of those people had sort of wartime partisan uh, links. I mean, he believed in uh, separatism. He believed in independence for Sicily. So th there was that sort of connection between the mob and politics, which there has always been. Uh, for example, the, the Liberal Party in Italy, you know, they relied on, on him to get them their votes for the centre-right parties in the post-war environment. Uh, and he was uh, something of a Robin Hood romantic when he snuck into the Duchess of Pretamino's estate in 1944. He asked her for her loot and she refused, so then he threatened to kidnap her children. 
so she handed over her jewellery and her diamond ring. He kissed her hand, and from that moment on, he wore her diamond ring for, for the rest of his life. He also supposedly took a John Steinbeck book called In Dubious Battle from her library, which she returned a week later with a, a respectful note. Saying, I couldn't read it. But it's the full cycle, really, of the mob. And, and, and that's really what we've tried to capture in, in, in this section on the hit. You know, it's, it's the violence that, that, that sort of underscores so much of, of what happens and what they do. And so on the one hand, they're doing their Robin Hood thing and, and drawing people to their ranks. But on the other, they're killing any kind of rival or anyone who might rise up. And, and mount opposition to what they're doing. And Giuliano was bumped off by his second-in-command on the advice of his treasurer or accountant, a very corporate. Whereas I believe in bumping off the accountant. In most countries, there's a separation between uh, organised crime and government, even if there's some crossover. But Russian mafia violence really intermingles both without much obvious separation. That goes all the way back to pre-revolutionary times when Stalin, in his youth, was a gangster. That's right. And, and, and it's a useful segue from Sicily to Russia because you could see that connection between politics and crime. So you get someone like Stalin linking politics with crime. He, he was a street thug, essentially. So he set up the Bolshevik Expropriation Club, known as the Group, and he set up the Red Battle Squad, or squads. So there were these organisations that not only robbed, they then sort of assassinated generals and military officers and those they thought were oppressing the peasantry or those in, inside towns and cities. And it was extremely violent. He was a bank robber. He ended up robbing um, stagecoaches that were moving around and sending those proceeds to Lenin. So it, it was essentially a fundraiser uh, for the Bolsheviks. It was extremely useful. And so when Stalin moved towards the, the, the main political groupings, was taken on by Lenin, he, he was a point man, he was a hit man, he had influence and he had bandits on the streets. And that is always useful for, for any politician, particularly in somewhere like Russia. And we've seen that continue, that tradition continue in, into the modern Times. I mean, you know, through the 90s and, and certainly into Putin's Russia. As one of a number of examples, you've got the uh, death of Paul Tatum, an American businessman assassinated in Moscow in 1996. And there were so many assassinations going on. I mean, I know people who were doing business in Russia at the time, and their right-hand men were, 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 were shot. You know, and it was always said, you either had to pay off the mafia or you had to bribe the politicians. You know, this was the only way that you could actually do business out there. It was, it was corrupt to the core and violent to the core. The price of life was low. One of the most famous, and it's really still ongoing, cases is the, the story of Sergei Magnitsky, who was a lawyer to Bill Browder and Hermitage Capital Management. Yes, and if you were doing business out there, and if you read Bill Browder's excellent book, Red Notice, it, it lays it bare. You can see exactly what was going on, the, the kleptomania, the, the, the ongoing 
theft of state property, state assets by Putin and his henchmen. And these companies are being sold off, the, the assets are being stripped or the shares are being bought at a discount by Putin's people. And they ended up sitting on billions. And Paul Magnitsky was one of the lawyers who, who, who spotted uh, what was going on, what, what was happening, and he refused to back down. And having spent a year in jail, he was eventually, um, with all these medical complaints, was was beaten to death by by the KGB. Yeah, he he, unlike the other lawyers, refused to kowtow. He, he sort of he went on a mission. He's an extraordinarily brave man. And the consequence of that is that the Magnitsky Act, which is came out of America with much lobbying from Browder and and, and others is a piece of legislation that allows governments, the American government, to punish individuals who are involved in organised crime, freezing their assets and so on, rather than just ticking them off in public opinion, which they don't care about, is to actually go after their money. And it's now been incorporated in UK law as well. So it, it has had an impact, but it, it shows how difficult it is when there is this sort of link between uh, crime organisations and political structures. It is so difficult to stand up as an organisation uh, because of the wealth, because of the reach, and because of the violence that goes on uh, through that entire system. And the Red Notice is essentially a government, when they want to have somebody arrested who is abroad, they get Interpol, or sometimes known as Interplod, to issue a Red Notice so that when that person crosses a border... Uh, they will be arrested by the authorities and sent to the country that's issued the notice. It was absurd what was going on with Bill Browder and, and the way that Putin was after him and that he was arrested in Spain at one point, although he didn't get sent to Russia. And so this red notice has been brought to some extent into disrepute, the system, but um, because it's used by countries like Russia and China for arresting political opponents. It is the weakness of Western countries in, in, in spotting this and dealing with it that, again, was one of the things that encouraged Putin to, to believe that he would get away literally with murder or uh, invading countries such as Ukraine. And the mob and organised crime has had a phenomenal influence both on politics and in the way that things are conducted, the, the way that that politics and business has been um, conducted around the world for so long. This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. I'm Clyde Barron. Clyde. We rob banks. Right, our next section is on what we might call global rampage, the mafia list. And we might as well start with a couple of the Russian gangs before we move on to the Italians. Yeah, well, let's start with Sergei Mikhailov. I mean, so many of these these groups, these organisations, started as local gangs in areas of Moscow. Uh, Mikhailov's gang or, or organised group started um, south of Moscow on the M3 highway heading down to Ukraine. And they were running extortion rackets and fraud and things like that and prostitution. They, 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 they cover the list, basically. I mean, they're probably about 5,000 members. And, and, and their membership, their gang members, are all across Europe now, are all across Eastern Europe. They even have people in the UK. And 
guess who's a friend of theirs? Putin, of course, because it's very useful. It's very useful for uh, transferring funds. It's very useful, like the casino operations of the mob in the United States. It's very good for for massaging the the figures and 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 converting currency and moving it around. And Oleg Ivanov, he's another one, also based in Moscow. Yeah, he's a, he's another one. It, it was interesting. And Mikhailov used to be uh, a waiter. He he spent time in prison for fraud. So you get Mikhailov, a waiter, and you got someone like Yevgeny. Prigozhin, head of the Wagner Group, who started as caterer, uh, caterer, a restaurateur, <laughs> yeah. a chef, hot dogs. Dad. So they, they all they all start with 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 uh, fairly lowly beginnings, and and then I mean, you quite often have the Italian the Italian Godfather in the kitchen making you know making, making his pasta, pasta sauce. Yeah, so so and, and this guy actually served it. So having money laundering facilities like Oleg Ivanov, who has a front company operation in Switzerland, for example, these are all very useful for the political elite and for the organised criminals themselves. So so their influence spreads. And so you can add organised crime with the Wagner group as well. And then you get people like the Nightwolves, the biker gang that were used as paramilitaries. It, it is this network, this framework of operators in every aspect of crime and paramilitary activity and intelligence work with the FSB as well, the connections there, that are so useful to this kleptocratic state, this this Putin-led state, and, and corruption as at its core. It's clear from Carlo Levi's book, Christ Stopped at Eboli, that the peasantry in southern Italy had a very little understanding of politics in Italy um, and what's going on in Rome, but they knew very well who the local bandits were, whether they were their own people, heroes or villains. And in Italy, there are a number of crime groups, such as the Camorra in Italy, who are really an umbrella organisation for a number of clans. Uh, so the Camorra, which was founded in the 17th century, has about 10,000 members, but the full extent of the group is unknown. They go back a hell of a long way, Tom. And you mentioned the 17th century. It goes back, many say, to 1417 and the Garduna, the Spanish prison gang. And they filtered back to the then Spanish Naples and established themselves and have been going ever since. And if you look at the the legitimate front companies, you know, we, we, we've spoken about the, the sort of organised crime and their front companies and their, their capacity, to, not just to launder money, but also to set up new businesses. And be legitimate. And be legitimate. So it's said that the Camorra own and operate 2,500 bakeries alone in Naples. They uh, monopolise the milk industry, the fishing industry. So, And that's before you even get on to the drugs, for example, and the extortion. And it can go horribly wrong. I mean, you can go back to 2004, 2005, and there were almost 250 street killings over what became known as the Scampi Wars, this rivalry between two clans. It's like the ice cream wars that you got between different patches of the, of, of the mafia, different, different uh, stamping grounds of the mafia. So, so these sort of altercations, these sort of uh, gang 
warfare on the street do break out occasionally in spite of the overall umbrella organization of the Camorra. And the Camorra is notoriously violent in, in, in its uh, operations. And just so we don't always blame the men, one of the Camorra bosses was Maria Licciardi, who was also known as the Godmother. And she took over the family clan when her brothers and husband were arrested and brought together a sort of coalition of about 20 of the Camorra clans to expand control of the city's most lucrative rackets. Including prostitution and extortion. Well, that was a new thing, actually. The prostitution was something that the Camorra Code of Conduct had forbade, but she broke this code by buying these girls from the Albanian mafia for $2,000 and enslaving them. Most of them were underage. Then using, they had to use a large part of their income on narcotics. And anyway, her downfall came, and there were a huge number of people killed in the bloody gang war. She was eventually arrested in 2001, released in 2009, arrested again in 2021 for running extortion rackets. Well, this is the thing about the mafia and organised crime. They are always looking for new rackets to, to, to run, and, and human trafficking given the migration problem across the Mediterranean, is just another area in which organised crime uh, gets its claws into. And so that's why, you know, whether it's coming across the Channel or coming across the Mediterranean, uh, organised crime is always going to be involved. Some people will know this, but since the 80s, the Camorra have handled waste disposal in Campania. By 1999, all the regional landfills had reached capacity and there was a sort of crisis. There's a place near Naples known as the Triangle of Death. It contains the largest waste dump in Europe and there's rising cancer-related mortality in this region caused by the Camorra running this organisation so poorly and basically just continuing to fill these landfills that are already at capacity. The Camorra has been called an eco-mafia group. And if you have a corrupted political system, then it's just fertile territory in which uh, the Camorra and other criminal organisations to grow. Uh, I remember driving through Italy with a journalist and and he was just pointing out to me all the half-completed aqueducts, viaducts, bridges, bridges, to bridges to nowhere. I mean, the bridges to nowhere, absolutely astonishing. Half of them are sort of EU money, of course, but it's the embezzlement and the extortion. And, and so it is that combination of politics and crime that just goes hand in hand in somewhere like Italy. And probably most well-known, most famous of all, if you watch The Godfather, is the Cosa Nostra, founded in the 19th century with supposedly about 5,500 members today. That's right, Tom. And, and if you get this situation that you had in the 19th century, it's, it's a difficult place to police, as anyone who's been to Sicily will know. And again, it's, it's done in a clan structure, like the Camorra. So you get these allegiances, but each clan is responsible for a particular town or a particular area. And they all feed in to that sort of central fund to, to, and answer to the boss of bosses. And those boss of bosses, even if they're arrested, the, the clans continue. So it's usual extortion, drug dealing, uh, business fronts that, that continue to this day. A many-headed operation. 
it's certainly not as strong or as wealthy as the Indrangheta that you get in Calabria, but it, it's still a presence. And, and there is this sort of romantic notion. And, and you have there the, 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 the sort of the ten points, the, the sacred commandments of a mafia boss whose house was raided and, and these were in his safe. And you, you can see this sort of perverted notion of honour of a murder, of who you should hang out with, who you should be answerable to. Yeah, a couple of examples of Salvatore Lo Piccolo's Ten Commandments uh, from 2007. Never look at the wives of friends. Always being available for Cosa Nostra is a duty, even if your wife is about to give birth. And another one, people who can't be part of the Cosa Nostra, anyone who has a close relative in the police, anyone with a two-timing relative in the family, anyone who behaves badly and doesn't hold moral values. It's great, isn't it? As I said, it's this perversion of, of the concept of honour, and yet there they are, you know, quite happy to throw children into vats of acid, quite happy to mount bombing raids and killing civilians to distract the authorities. I mean, this is what you're dealing with. You're dealing with utterly dishonourable, utterly despicable, utterly violent human beings. And just as a side note, the Moors were expelled from Spain, weren't they? Well, they were, and they're, they're under Isabella and Ferdinand. So what happens, they travel down, just as the, the Camorra travel down from Spain, uh, they travel down to Morocco and became the Saleh pirates, became the Corsairs and started raiding um, shipping and territories around the Mediterranean and even as far north as Britain and Iceland. So, uh, you know, it's amazing how, as we said at the beginning, new opportunities arise, new criminal organisations develop and evolve. And this is really what we've talked about in terms of organised crime. They have a reach that just mere street gangs don't have. And their longevity is the problem, isn't it? The Corsairs were only really finally dealt with after Waterloo. Yeah, 1816 was, yeah. Where, was when Algiers was raided by the Royal Navy. So unless you get a concerted effort, and there were concerted efforts against, I mean, Mussolini, for example, clamped down on the mafia, on the... Cosa Nostra in Sicily, because you know, he felt snubbed. He, he turned up in Sicily for a political rally, a fascist rally, and no one turned up because he said he didn't want mafia bodyguards. And he, he was absolutely peeved by this. So he sent his acolytes in to, to, to persecute and prosecute the mafia. And that's what happened. So during that sort of period, under the fascists, the mafia did not thrive in Sicily. But lo and behold, once that goes, once there's that post-war environment, that the mafia reappear in strength. Japan is known for its gangsters, the heavily tattooed Yakuza, which is really a collective term for the crime syndicates in Japan. One of the most well-known ones is the Yamaguchi Gumi, founded in Kobe in 1915. And like so many other crime organisations that you see in Sicily or in uh, Colombia or Mexico, they, they try and appeal 
they try to acquire this sort of Robin Hood aspect that they're on the side of the peasants. Um, they're certainly not on the side of the peasants in Mexico, of course. They're, they're mostly throwing them down mine shafts. But, but certainly in places like Japan, that they, they have this aspect to them that, that tries to show that they are there, that they're doing aid programs. Every time there's an earthquake or a tsunami, the Yakuza, in this case the Yamaguchi, are out there handing out aid, you know, giving shelter, helping people out. But it doesn't take away from the fact that they are also extorting, drug running, killing, you name it, and, and laundering money. They don't sound quite as ghastly as some of the others. I mean, they do have a newsletter, eight-page newsletter, edited by the current kingpin. There's a column he he writes on fishing techniques, including angling. <laughs> he must be a good man. But but he's been around a, a long time, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, 42 to the present day. He's 81 now. God, what's his name? 1942. Go on, pronounce his name. His name is Kenichi Shin- Shinoda. Kenichi Shinoda. They do stoop occasionally to uh, murder, though. They, they murdered a Japanese film director, Juzo Itami, in 1992. Yeah, they took him up to the top of a, top of a building and, and gave him a choice. They said, uh, we'll, we'll either shoot you in the face or you can jump. And he jumped. Perhaps he thought he might survive with just a couple of broken legs, but he, he, he was killed. And they've also murdered the mayor of Nagasaki because the mayor of Nagasaki wouldn't give them lucrative building contracts. So there's always this strange connection, this, this friction, uh, and this symbiosis between local politics and organised crime. You know, this is what they're trying to do. They're, they're, they're trying to develop a political base in, in a region and from that launch their contacts, their connections, their influence at the international level and the national level. Well, I think we've covered it, Jamie, so let's have the postscript by returning to the five New York mafia families. These are the Bonanno family, the Colombo family, the Gambino family, the Genovese, and the Lucchese. And it was organised in 1931 by Salvatore Maranzano, following his victory in the Castellamarese War, which was a great power struggle in New York to control the city in the 30s. Effectively, each family was given a territory in New York, and they would report to Maranzano, who would be the capo di capi, the boss of all bosses. He, however, was assassinated and replaced by the Commission, which was a ruling committee established by Lucky Luciano. And he was pretty lucky. He survived. One of the few. He survived and died in 1962, having been sent back to Italy. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that it's not just New York. That Commission, those five families, really run all Mafia activity across the whole of the United States. So the influence really moved from Chicago and the Al Capone era, the, the, the 1920s, to New York during the 1930s and afterwards. And, and that structure still remains. And, it, and it's fascinating that 
in those group in that commission you had factions you had political factions you had the traditionalists the conservative group uh, led by the bonanno clan that believed in the old-fashioned sort of sicilian concept of honor or murder all of that and then you had the what they would consider the more liberal wing who believed in entering the drugs trade um, dealing with other groups, other associated groups, such as the Colombians, for example. So there was that tension. And I think it's fair to say that it's that so-called liberal faction that, that took over because these groups are so much more international now and their, their remit and their reach spread very wide indeed. And that liberal and conservative faction is, is told in the story of the first Godfather movie, uh, very well with Don Vito being a traditionalist and not wanting to supposedly get into the drug trade. That's right. I think it's it's much better to just get into a swimming pool full of electric eels, frankly. Well, before we finish, I think it might be just wor- worth talking about why Luciano was called Charles Lucky Luciano. He was the first official boss of the Genoese crime family and was convicted of prostitution racketeering in 1936 and given a a very long sentence of 30 to 50 years in prison. But he struck a deal through his Jewish mob associate, Mayor Lansky, to provide the American government with naval intelligence during the Second World War from the Mafia partisans in Italy. And for his alleged wartime cooperation in 1946, his sentence was commuted although he was sent back to Italy. And, and that's why it's, it's this combination of, of organised crime being quite useful, not only to intelligence organisations, but also to the, the political powers that be, you know, that they have that reach they, and they have local knowledge. So it goes right back to what we were speaking about at the, the beginning, was, was this evolution of street gangs into organised crime and how it's that street gang element It's that local element that still has a use in organised crime, even to this day. Nice one, Jamie. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. So it goes. You have been listening to Bloody Violent History with myself and James Jackson. Please remember to give us a plug and share this episode. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck. (laughs) 